Ecclesiastes, uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Uh, we're going to be uh, some other places too, but that's going to be kind of true north for us is Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, there's usually a table of contents. You can find the book, and then if you open the Bible, there's big numbers. Those are chapters. Little numbers, those are verses. Um, I remember when I first became a Christian, that was all new to me. So Ecclesiastes chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 15. All right. Okay, so the book of Ecclesiastes is a little bit of an overview. It's an interesting book. It's a complicated book. Uh, it's a very unique, stylized book. It's very different than other books of the Bible. Uh, Ecclesiastes is more like literature or a stylized memoir than it is like a historical book, okay? It's an interesting book. And much of the book of Ecclesiastes has a really somber tone, uh, the main voice, the main speaker, he calls himself the preacher, and uh, he laments what he sees throughout the book, what he sees is the vanity or the fleeting nature or the meaninglessness of life. And so the book of Ecclesiastes, it opens with these very sunny lines. It says this, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Yeah, encouraging, right? How about these words from the close of chapter 1? It says this, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. Not the most encouraging read, right? This darker tone of Ecclesiastes, it continues through most of the book as the author shows again and again how life on earth, the things we often value, power, work, fairness, pleasure, that if those are all the things that there are in life, he argues then that this world is short it's meaningless, and it's disappointing. It's one of the major messages of a book of the Bible, Ecclesiastes. Yes, there are these moments of joy. There are times of relief. There are delights, a great meal, uh, a pleasing relationship. But it's almost like the author is like, if these 68 e 60 to 80 years is all we have, it's a little deflating, a little depressing to the author. Maybe you have felt that way before. Maybe not all the time, but late at night if you can't sleep, uh, when you come back from vacation and you were so excited about it, thought it was going to fill you up, and then you come back and you have to go back to work and your soul is still tired. Maybe when you change another diaper on that child that you love, that you thought would fulfill you, but it's just so much work and you're just so freaking tired. Maybe when you realize that relationship that you thought would solve all your problems, would satisfy you completely, when that relationship now feels boring or like drudgery. Maybe you say to your own self, like the author here, vanity of vanities, life is meaningless. I think we've all been there at times. Uh, it, it's funny, right? Sometimes we can feel our worst even after we've received the thing we're most looking forward to, a, prom a promotion, a vacation, a stable relationship. And it's interesting because the author of Ecclesiastes, you might think, wow, why is this guy so bummed? What's this issue? Well, the author of Ecclesiastes isn't someone that life has dealt like an incredibly hard hand to. Uh, he isn't someone whose circumstances uh, have made him uh, feel like pessimistic, okay? Uh, on the contrary, the author of this king, he's exceedingly wealthy. He's powerful. He says that all of his sexual desires have been fulfilled. He lacks nothing. 
He's wise. He's educated. No amazing experience that he saw on Instagram escaped him. Okay? He, he, he says in chapter 2, verse 9, he says, Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. He has tasted deeply from all that life offers. And yet, still, when the author considers life, he proclaims it vanity of vanities. All is vanity. That's the dominant and most clear message of the book of Ecclesiastes. But if you look closer, there's more to it. There's more to this book. If you gaze deeply and you really consider uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, you realize that the author here is an artist. And he is an artist that is creating a complicated masterpiece with this book. There is a deeper truth, a more profound beauty that he's leading the reader towards. But it's not one that comes easily. It's not one that uh, you just instantly read and it's really apparent. You have to kind of work for it. Uh, it's sometimes said of modern art, which I'm not like super into, but like, uh, like the stuff you'd find at the San Francisco MoMA, that these are works that don't give up their truth easily. You don't just walk up to them and understand what they are. Uh, the point of this kind of art, it's not readily apparent. It's not obvious. And the beauty and truth of this kind of art might take time to understand. It might change and grow deeper as the viewer looks at it more closely and reflects on it over time. Uh, one, one work like this that I think is really interesting, there's a guy named Christian Markley, and he has this, I don't even know what you call this, this work he has. It's a film called The Clock. And The Clock is a 24-hour film. Uh, it's won a number of awards, uh, and it's been hosted at a number of museums like uh, the, the, New, the, uh, the MoMA in New York, the MoMA in San Francisco, the Tate Modern in London. It's this strange but very incredible experience. Uh, and a good friend of mine, uh, one of my best friends, he considers it genuinely like the most profound piece of art he's ever seen in his life. You can, you can see clips of it on YouTube. And so, again, it's a 24-hour film, okay? You don't watch the whole thing. Uh, it's, it's a moving image, like collage, made of excerpts and clips of thousands of films, okay, that feature timepieces or clocks from things like clock towers to pocket watches that are synchronized to the actual time of the day that you have, okay? So, um, I, I'm sorry to explain it. Uh, it links clips from all these different movies, from hundreds of years of film, and it, it's, it's really spellbinding. It's like it's a really miraculous kind of editing. It's like a feat of someone looked at all of the movies that ever made and picked out all of the clips that ever show the time and synchronized all of those times with every minute of the day. So every minute of the 24-hour film is a different clip that shows the time. Okay, so if you go into the clock at like 4.35 in the afternoon, the clips will show scenes from 4.35. At 4.36, you'll see a different scene. And 4.37, and 4.38, for as long as you possibly can endure, for up to 24 hours. It's this incredible experience. And when people watch the movie, the first layer that they kind of think about is that, wow, it's amazing that there are so many movies. Can you believe how many movies there are? Can you believe how much time it would take to, to put this together? That's kind of the first layer of meaning, that we live in a world that's saturated with film and with visual media. But the film kind of encourages the viewer to like slow down and be aware of time. And there's this deeper layer, the second layer of meaning. And, and Christian Markley, who, who you know, made this whole thing, he describes the clock as a contemporary memento mori. Now, I don't know if any of you guys are art students who remember what that is, but it's Latin for remember you die, memento mori. And this is a practice of art that's like very uh, that's found throughout throughout a lot of art, particularly in the Renaissance. And it's it's a way of remembering that life is short, that much of life is is difficult, and that like Ecclesiastes says, it's vanity. Uh, Memento mori are works that focus on time and death. And in doing this, they help us live better lives. And they help us understand the true meaning of life. You'll find memento mori in medieval art. I think we'll have some of those come up here. 
So here's some examples. So when you see a skull, like if you were in Europe and looking at art, if you find a skull, that's almost usually often a version of a memento mori. It's trying to remember death. Okay, so there's another one here, lady pointing at a skull. Isn't that interesting? Consider death. Okay, keep going. How about this nice family photo? Here, let's get our, our, our oil painting done. Let's put, a, let's put a skull next to it. And then now my favorite, this last one, time, life, death. Okay? Uh, the Mexican holiday, Dia de los Muertes, it's also kind of a festival version of a memento mori. Uh, this kind of practice, it's found across different cultures and religions. Uh, and it's a call to remember that death comes for us all, that life is short, and we should focus on the most important things, love, family, simple pleasures. You can see some of uh, uh, Dia de los Muertes in a second. We can just cycle through those. I don't know if you guys have ever seen this. Uh, James Bond's latest movie, he has a fight in one of these. Um, we can go to the last one, too. Thanks. Okay, skulls, and in expressing this theme, this focus on death and time, there's often a hidden meaning or this kind of underlying longing for something eternal. Sometimes you'll see this in the juxtaposition of a flower or really bright colors alongside these images of death. And so when you consider this Mexican celebration, the Day of the Dead, especially Westerners, we often think, you know, Americans, that uh, this is some like really dark, fixated on death festival, Right? But on further reflection, on that kind of second layer of meaning, you see that this festival reflects a high value on family, a connection with one's ancestors, with honoring one's roots, and remembering those who've gone before. That's really what they're trying to celebrate. But there's a third level, this last level, this final reflection that you would think of a memento mori, something like De Dos Muertos, reveals a longing, a longing to live beyond the grave, to be reconciled with those you have loved. It reveals a longing for eternity. And the book of Ecclesiastes has this similar kind of multi-layered meaning, and it's true of our text today. And so as we look at this text, Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 15, we're going to look at it kind of in like three passes, sort of three layers of meaning, three ways of looking at this section of the book to discover the message that the author and the artist intended. And I believe, honestly, that God, ultimately, the author behind the author of Ecclesiastes, wants us to hear. So the first layer, the first kind of pass we'll make of this, uh, this text is that life is seasonal. Layer 1, Life is seasonal. The section in Ecclesiastes 3, it opens in verse 1. It says this, For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. And then we get this long list of 14 seasons, 14 cycles that we experience as we observe life. Uh, broadly speaking, you could categorize each of these 14 kind of couplets as a positive or a negative. Uh, they're comforting or concerning. They're optimistic or pessimistic. They're up here on a chart, I think. And, and so let me tell you, I'm going to read to you um, the passage that you see up on this chart. It says this, for everything there is a season, a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down, and a time to build up, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek, and a time to lose, a time to keep, and a time to cast away, a time to tear, and a time to sow, a time to keep silence, and a time to speak a time to love, a time to hate, a time for war, a time for peace. 
Uh, I think if, for most of us, um, if we tend to find ourselves gravitating toward the kind of uh, pessimistic side of the spectrum, like uh, this, this negative, like you like the book of Ecclesiastes, okay? Uh, if you're a more optimistic person, uh, you probably don't, okay? But we need both of these. We need both of these perspectives together. Uh, a person that just sees from one of these perspectives who's always doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. How are things going? They're going great. Everything's good. That person is lying, okay? We all know this, right? And the person who is always struggling, it's always something's going on, something hurts, something's wrong, something's happening, that person probably needs a hug, okay? And, but, but seriously, though, if you put these two things together... It's like seeing with both of your eyes open. It's not that one of those perspectives is wrong. It's just that it's incomplete. You know, imagine if you just saw uh, with one eye, you just open one eye. You, you, you're seeing an accurate depiction of the world, but, but it's flat. It's not, it's not entire. It's not total, right? We need both of those perspectives to fully see, to fully understand what's going on. And so the author of Ecclesiastes, he encouraged us to open our eyes, both of them, to see reality and life for the whole of what it is, the positive and the negative. But besides these two categories, on the surface level, this first layer of meaning can seem almost obvious, right? Life is seasonal, okay? I get it. Life is seasonal. It has seasons and cycles. There's an ebb and a flow. There's good times. There's bad times. Uh, and, but we need to acknowledge, right, that these seasons and these rhythms of life matter. In our geography, there's these seasons. There's winter. There's spring. There's summer and fall. Different cultures don't have those seasons. But those seasons matter in our lives, if we fail to recognize what season of life we are in, we're going to suffer the consequences of that. Uh, if you wear a swimming suit outside in the middle of winter in Minnesota, you're going to be uncomfortable, and so are the people around you, okay? The season matters. And this is true in the physical world, but it's also true in relationships. It's true as we mature and grow as humans. You know, imagine that you're a farmer and you just ignore the seasons. You plant seeds whenever you want. You try to harvest whenever you feel like it. Uh, if this is how you live as a farmer, not recognizing that there's some sort of season of life that you're in, what kind of crop are you going to produce? Probably not a good one, right? Maybe not one at all. And we can recognize this when we think of the natural realm, this agricultural world. But what about the rest of our lives? What season of life are you in right now at work, for instance? Is it spring when you're striving and striving to prove yourself? Is it summer when you need to pace yourself so that you can make a sustained impact for a long time? Is it fall or winter when you need to give responsibility to someone else to empower someone else to move on to the next challenge? How about in your friendships, in your relational world? Relationary, are you in a time when you need to be sowing into new friendships? Maybe it's going to be a while before you reap the harvest of sowing. It's really interesting. I live in San Francisco. Um, I work with a lot of young people that are there. They've moved to the city, and they're, they're lonely, and they feel frustrated. And they, they don't realize that they're in a season probably of sowing into new relationships. They've left the season of, harv of like reaping and experiencing the fruit of that, and they just think, why don't I have close friends? It's like, you just moved here. You're in the season of sowing into new relationships. You're not going to experience the fruit of that probably for a couple years. What season are you with your friendships? In terms of your own personal maturity, what season are you in? Are you still living like an adolescent when you need to mature and you're ignoring that season has changed? Are you depending on your parents and you need to start living more independent, preparing to be someone that can be depended upon? Or if, if maybe you're in the middle season of life, it's kind of where I am. I have younger kids and need to recognize that this season won't be coming back. I need to prioritize family over work because our children aren't going to be home forever, right? That's the season that my family's in. Or maybe you're older and you are enjoying the harvest that your life produced. And, and it's time to begin that step back of responsibilities. 
You know, eventually as we reach old age, it becomes the season to give up independence, to plant our final seeds, ones that we're never even going to see come to harvest. Uh, It's really interesting to me, young people, we need to like goad them into responsibility, like be more responsible, take on more things. And, And older people, it's like do less things, stop doing things. Like I don't know if any of you have like a grandparent that needs to stop driving and it's like grandma has been able to drive for like C for three years, but she won't give up the license. Like, yeah, some of us need to recognize the season of life that we're in and embrace it and, and say, hey, we need to get ready for the next thing. Uh, one author has said this. He said, an unwillingness to recognize and surrender to what time it is within the season that attends to us can harm us. I think that's really true. Life is seasonal. We need to know what season we're in. We've got that one. Let's move to the second layer of meaning. Okay, layer two. Man is temporary, frustrated, and lost. Layer two of meaning in this text, man is temporary, frustrated, and lost. Uh, As we look more deeply into the section of Scripture, we realize that this text is not just this ode to the seasonality. It's not just seasons exist. Uh, maybe you guys, maybe some older, older saints in here have heard the hippie uh, song version of these words. A uh, song was popularized by a band called The Birds. We're going to actually play a little bit of it in the late 60s. This would have echoed around San Francisco, actually. So uh, let's play the free-spirited Birds song. Familiarity? Anyone know this? All right. It's literally just words straight from the Bible. <laughs> if you're a songwriter and you're having a hard time, just steal from Scripture. Everything turn, turn, turn. There is a season, turn, turn, turn. And a time to every purpose under heaven. Play another about 30 a seconds. A time so. to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to read, a time to kill, a time to heal. A time to laugh, a time to weep. There we go. It's a very happy song, right? It's a very happy song. But as we examine the second layer of this text, we realize a darker truth, right? Beginning in verse 9, if you were looking in Ecclesiastes, uh, verse 9, which actually is probably the last line of the poem that we read in verses 1 through 8. Imagine, our modern translations kind of separate these two, uh, but it's not clear that that should happen in the text. Imagine if the song and poem ended with this. What gain has the worker from his toil? That's verse 9. Season, 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 verse 9. What gain has the worker from his toil? Changes the the meaning a bit, right? The author continues in verse 10. He goes on. I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. When the author of Ecclesiastes mentions this business that God has given people to be busy with, when he mentions it earlier in chapter 1, he calls it an unhappy business. There is a more challenging layer he is, uh, that we are discovering when we study these words. And one commentator, he says this, he says, it's a mistake to extract these verses, the poem, verses 1 through 8, from the whole chapter, as is often is done, and think that they can have their real meaning displayed without seek, learning how the preacher follows them. He says this, the poetry is setting up a problem that the prose seeks to resolve, okay? The poetry is kind of setting up an issue, and then he's going to go into what the solution is. So what is that problem? It's that this cyclical, seasonal nature of life is tyrannical, and we long to escape from it. Uh, We can enjoy simple pleasures, but isn't there more? 
Is all of life this ebb and flow, this cycle of positive and negative of life and death? Are we just stuck on an endless loop? Am I just going through days and nights like millions of others who've gone before me, like millions of others who will go after me? Am I going to die and be forgotten? Is this all there is? I don't know if you uh, remember the movie Groundhog Day. Anyone seen Groundhog Day with Bill Murray? There's also a short story, and there's a Broadway play about it as well. Um, And and in Groundhog Day, uh, Bill Murray plays a character, Phil uh, Connors, and he is stuck living the same day over and over and over again. It's February 2nd, Groundhog Day. And every morning he wakes up, and Sonny and Cher's Sonny song, I've Got You, Babe, comes on. I've got you, babe. Every morning, 6 a.m., plays on his radio alarm clock. And as Phil lives this time and time again and again, the same February 2nd, first he's scared, he doesn't know what's going on, and then he's exhilarated as he realizes that he can do whatever he wants without any lasting consequences. He can commit crimes, he can seduce women, he can treat people however he pleases, and yet, if you know the film story, it disappoints over time. The cycle of living day after day, the same day, over and over, it wears him down. And and Groundhog Day is a contemporary memento mori. It's really interesting. He eventually becomes so depressed, he tries to take his own life. And the film version makes it a little bit lighter. Uh, The story in the Broadway play, it's even darker. He tries to kill himself in these creative, comical, dark ways, but he can't. And he wakes up again every morning. I've got you, babe. And what seemed like this happy song eventually becomes this sort of like horrible soundtrack to this this life that he can't escape. The problem that this poem is establishing is that we as humans, we long for more than this cyclical life. We are living our longer version of our own Groundhog Day. But eventually we too want to escape. There has to be more. We want to live forever. We long for a better existence and eternity. But as Ecclesiastes reminds us, this isn't possible, right? Death exists. Memento mori. Remember you are going to die. If that's true, then vanity of vanities, life is meaningless. Every person deep in their souls lives with this kind of frustration. I really believe that it comes out at different times in different ways. We long for transcendence. We want to escape this grind, but we can't seem to figure a way to get out. So we look for things all in our life, ways to escape the realities of this world, but we're lost and we can't find our way. The author of Ecclesiastes puts it in verse 11. He says uh, of God, he says this, this, about this frustration. It says, he has made everything beautiful in his time. He's speaking of God. And he has put eternity into man's heart. Sounds positive, but listen. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to the end. Do you pick up the frustration there? The author claims God has put eternity, eternal desires of transcendence and eternal lives in our hearts, and yet we cannot find the, 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 what God is up to. We can't figure it out on our own. However hard we try, we cannot find what our hearts deeply long for. And if we keep reading this tension with this tension, this frustration of mind, here's verses 12 and 13. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that every man should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. This might sound positive. It's sort of a statement of resignation. Here, the author, and through his perspective, we, the reader, find ourselves. We long for eternity. We long for transcendence, but we can't figure out how to obtain it. And so the best thing we can do is to live moral lives, be good people, eat food, drink, take simple pleasure in our life, and just recognize that that's what life is. And what I think about is that, isn't that kind of idea the best that a secular world has to offer us? Live a good life, 
have some fun, recognize it's temporary, and accept death. (laughs) The author has done in this text something amazing. He's deconstructed the illusions, and he's boiled life down to its basic meaning, that if there is no God, if there is no hope of eternity, eat, drink, be merry, tomorrow we die. That is an incredibly sobering view of reality. And at least for me, at least for me, I don't know about you, at least for me, it's spectacularly unsatisfying. But in this disappointment that I think, that's what, that's what memento moris do, that's what Ecclesiastes is, it takes us to this place of disappointment, this place of frustration, where we realize that our deepest desires for eternity are unmet, and in this dark state, we find seeds of hope. I love, C.S. Lewis has this great quote, he says this, if I find myself a desire, in myself a desire, which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were meant never to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on the one hand never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings. On one, on, on one hand, and on the other, never to mistake them for something else of which they're only a kind of copy and echo or mirage. He's describing this frustration, and he's saying that when we get to this place where our desires are frustrated, we shouldn't hate that, we should accept that there's some things that meet that, but we should look for more. We should look for eternity, and then we get to this final layer of meaning, layer three, it says that God is eternal and he is seeking. Layer three, God is eternal and he is seeking. You keep reading the text that we've been in. Verse 14, it says this. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. And now the author of Ecclesiastes is like laying out the total hand. He's like putting it all on the table. He begins to kind of give up the deepest truth. He contrasts this temporary cyclical life that man has and the eternal work and life of God. What man longs for, what man wishes they could do, God has accomplished. He has done it. He lives outside of this cycle of life and death, outside of this ebb and flow, outside of this rhythm of tyranny. When people recognize this difference between ourselves and God, the proper response is fear. And biblical fear, it's it's less about terror and it's more about profound respect And so the author paints God as eternal, transcendent, worthy of respect and reverence. He is the conqueror of death whose work lasts forever. He's utterly different than we are. And then let's read the final verse of our passage, verse 15. It says this, That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Stakes have been set cannot be changed. Man is temporary. He's frustrated. And yet, God seeks what has been driven away. When I began studying this passage, that that phrase, just, you know, one of those phrases just jumped out at me. And I underlined and I wrote them, what does that mean that God seeks what's driven away? And uh, if you you know some of the the, the Bible's story, uh, there's the the images of work and toil uh, are very rooted in the book of Genesis, in the, in, the, in the opening chapters of the book of Genesis, which Ecclesiastes is talking about. And being driven away is also sort of borrowing themes from the book of Genesis. And if you were to go to the beginning of the Bible, to Genesis chapter 3, there's this story of how mankind became alienated from God. How did we get stuck in this toil of life and death and the tyranny of these cycles? 
And the short version of that story is that the man and woman, Adam and Eve, they disobeyed God. They chose to attempt to satisfy their desires and their delights for pleasure and power in rebellion against God instead of finding satisfaction for these desires in relationship with God. And so God, this holy, perfect, eternal God who doesn't err, he drove them out of the garden into this world now broken by their sin. You read it for yourself, Genesis 3.23, it says this, Therefore the Lord God sent him out of, from the Garden of Eden to work from the ground, that's that toil, he drove out the man. I hope you're catching this, but because of sin, God drove mankind away, or he allowed us to drive ourselves away, whatever it is. Now we're lost, but God seeks what has been driven away. This is the good news. That, that since the beginning of mankind, that we have all been doing exactly what Adam and Eve have done, seeking to satisfy our desires in something other than relationship with God. And we now all live because of that sin and because of Adam and Eve's sin and humanity's sin, frustrated, stuck in a cycle, that's unsatisfying life that's ultimately going to lead in death. But God seeks what's been driven away. I have a, I have a my youngest son, his name's Stott, uh, not Scott, Stott. Um, and uh, I was putting him to bed earlier this year, and he was four at the time. And he likes to have someone snuggle with him. He, he's a ter- he sleeps terribly. Uh, and so he wants to have someone kind of snuggle with him. And I, I have five kids, so I know the whole, like, put your kids to bed thing. But this kid has de- defeated me. Um, so I'll help snuggle him and put him to bed. But it's a great time to be able to kind of snuggle and talk with him. And we're, we're laying in bed. And he asks me questions as he often does. He says, Dad, what, is, what does uh, Sikh mean? And at first I thought, like, like the guys with the turbans, you know, like Sikhs, you know, because I, and I, and he was, and I, you know, I was, he's just looking at me like I'm crazy. And then I'm like, oh, you mean like, oh, like looking. And I said, oh, well, Sikh means to look for something and to try to find something. This is a true story. I'm not, this isn't like a preacher illustration. I'm not making this up. Um, and so Stott, he, he looks up at me and he smiles and he says, oh, that's why it's called hide and seek. Like he, he understood the hidden part, but he didn't understand the seeking part. And, and I think that can be true for us sometimes, right? Uh, and I thought to myself, oh, this is a good moment. Uh, it's a teachable moment. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk to him. I said to him, you know, you know, the Bible says, Stott, you know, that, that if we seek God with all of our heart, we'll find him. You know, we'll, that God says that. And he looks at me kind of weird, and he's like, wow, that's weird. God's easy to find. He's everywhere. And I was like, oh, that's such a sweet little answer, this, this truth, right? And, and I love it. He told, and I love that because he told the truth, that God is easy to find. His game of hide-and-seek with us is not complicated. We are hiding. He is seeking. Our job is to just, like, raise our hand like, I want to get found. Okay? God's holiness, in his holiness, he drove us away because of our sin. In his love, he comes after us, offers to bring us home. That is what Ecclesiastes is pointing us to. The rest of the Bible fills in this story. It's a God who covers the gap between you and him, a God who is seeking you, who is offering you hope of eternity, escape from this tyranny of time, and this freedom from the grind of life under the sun. And this seeking God, he sent his son Jesus, Jesus who himself was God, and Jesus, he lived all of the cycles of the human life, and he died a human death, and yet Jesus conquered that death. He resurrected from the dead, a work that will last forever that cannot be undone. Jesus proved himself to be God, greater than this life, able to free us from the sin that drove us away from God, the sin that traps us in this cyclical life. He's able to forgive the sin that without him doing that would lead to our eternal death. 
I love when you, when you put the context of this time and this life and death, I love that Jesus calls himself the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, outside of time. And he says of himself again, Luke 19, 10, Jesus himself, what did he come to do? He came to seek and to save the lost. God seeks what has been driven away. He has done that primarily in the person of Jesus Christ. God covered the distance between you and him, and he seeks to bring you back to himself. That is the ultimate, deepest message of this text in the book of Ecclesiastes, that God is eternal and that he is seeking you. Will you stop running? Will we be found by him? Whatever has driven you away, sin, guilt, shame, uh, regret, fear, indifference, ignorance, pride, familiarity that just breeds contempt, God is not hard to find. He is seeking you. Let's get found today. Let's pray. God, I love this text and I love your word. So rich, so much truth in it. And I love that it points us to Jesus Christ. And so, God, as we stand here, all of us, before you in different places, different challenges, um, we're all lost in our own ways. Some of us have never been found by you. And, God, I pray that if, if that's someone here today, Lord, that they would be found today for the first time, that they would submit themselves to you, that they would acknowledge you as the one who's looking, who made them, who saved them, and they would do that in faith. And, God, I think a lot of us here, we may have had a relationship with you, but we find ourselves lost at times. We find ourselves hiding from you. And so, God, we come to you in repentance and say, Lord, we want to be found again. We want to be reconciled. I'm so grateful that you sent your son. I'm so grateful that you come finding us like a good father finds lost children. It's in your son's name that we pray. Uh, I, I love that we get to end a time like this with a moment of communion, which is really just this wonderful chance for us to remember that moment that Jesus died, that's so central in God's plan to finding us. And so um, if you're uh, a believer and you trust Jesus as the way God, uh, the person God used to find you, this is a chance to remember his body and his blood broken. And so uh, as the music plays, we're going to play some quiet music. It's a chance for you to come up and to remember that moment to take the bread and to take the bit of juice or wine. Uh, you're welcome to come up as a family or with a friend to pray together and to remember God's sacrifice on our behalf. Let's, let's do that.